Scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 23. And if anyone needs a Bible, there are Bibles on tables on both sides here. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity. I'm John, one of the pastors here, and I just want to add my thanks to uh, those who have already given words of thanks, especially to people who worked really hard to get us in here. No one worked harder than Laura Curtin. <laughs> John and Jenny Laureate and all the volunteers that came on the different nights and uh, thankful for Julie Mers and Ryan Tyke driving that big truck. I was there when the decision was made on what we were going to do. Is it was, okay, six weeks to have them shipped or four weeks we can go pick them up. And this is like... Let's control our own destiny as much as possible. And then somebody just said, they just said, hey, we'll go, we'll fly to Nashville. Uh, one of the things I'm most thankful about in the space is the kids' space. Um, for as long as I can remember, we've had absolutely inadequate kids' space. Um, the very first place after we planted in Hyde Park, um, the like young, the, the sort of young kids space was in a gothic chapel with uh, like rock hard floors. And then the, the nursery was in a classroom at the Chicago Theological Seminary. Pretty sure the carpets had not been cleaned for like 90 years. Because while, you know, the word of God was being imparted into the children's hearts, the soil from all the students was, they would come home with black hands, their hands, it was, Really gross. The first, the first place that, uh, that we moved after planting downtown in a hotel was to 175 West Washington, which is a, a musician's building. And our, our kids' space, our um, 
where we did our classrooms at first, no, this is the nursery, was just like a hallway, just like that one, and we put up a little gate, and that was it. So to be able to have secure space and safe space um, it makes me feel guilty about all these years and what we've been doing to kids. Anyway, super thankful to be here. Um, phase one is done. There used to be a wall right here and right here that about six weeks ago was torn down and the floor was redone. Phase two, we're building a little ramp right there to um, CTA so that you guys don't have to come down the stairs. You can just come right over and we'll make it as convenient as possible as, as we can for you. The question I want you to be thinking about today is this. Do the things that you do in this life endure into the next life? That is, if you're a musician, do some of the notes that you play, will they last on into eternity? If you're a teacher, does some of the impact of your teaching last on Beyond this life, if you're a medical doctor, the people or a nurse, the people whose lives that you touched and cared for, does it endure into the next life? The question for today is, does your work endure? Will it endure? And, and in some ways, it's an appropriate topic for today is part of our prayer and our search over the last year and last two years for space has been God, give us a place that we can minister from for the next 50 years or the next 100 years. So I'm really thankful to tell you that we signed a 200-year lease right here uh, at 218 South Wabash. No. But we have been thinking, Lord, how do you position our ministry, our life in the center of the city? It's very likely that we are the only church in the loop, in what's properly called the loop right now. So praise God for that. hundred years ago, there was a sculpture, a sculptor who made a sculpture in uh, 1920. I want you to picture a man on the south side of Chicago getting out his, uh, his chisel and a hammer. And he made a, uh, a statue that looked like the Grim Reaper. <laughs> he had like a, a cloak like this and a, a scythe or a scythe, how do you say that? A scythe, you know, to take people out. This is Laredo Taft, 1920. And he made a, uh, a sculpture that's called the Fountain of Time. And it's a hundred characters from little children that are frolicking and playing to couples that look like they just got married to soldiers marching into war. And it's a picture of the ravages of time. And the, the person I described as the Grim Reaper is actually Father Time. And he's standing there as if to say that everything that comes into the world also passes out of the world. And that nothing lasts. In fact, uh, the, the sculpture, which is at the it's at the western end of the Midway Plaisance down in Hyde Park near the kind of faux Gothic buildings at the University of Chicago. Uh, it's based on a poem by Henry Austin Dobson that has a line that goes like this. Time goes, you say. Ah, no. Alas, time stays and we go. And the imagery is about the transitory nature 
of human life and the transitory nature of what we do. Think for a moment about the great achievements of mankind. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress with a third grade education, wrote it from jail. They sold 250 million copies. He's made his mark on time, so to speak. That's 100 million more than Lord of the Rings, just so you know. Or think of the great, the project of the Great Wall of China. Construction began in the third century and lasted for 2,000 years. And you can still see it today. Like, what kind of vision does it take to start a 2,000-year project to lay the first stone? Or there are cathedrals that have been built in Europe that took 500 years to build. And can you imagine being, the, being like on the front end of that project? Yeah, we should be done in... You know, with, when you work with general contractors, it always takes longer than they say, you know. We'll be done in a month. It really means three months, which means four months. Imagine 500 years. There's some cathedrals in France that took uh, 500 years to, to create. The, the person in charge of a great cathedral and their construction is called a, a master builder or a master mason, and they were responsible for every architectural element of the cathedral, every stone where it's going to be placed. But sometimes the mason would pass the work on to his son and then to his grandson because of how long it took. So what about you? Will the work you do last into eternity? The title of this sermon is Built to Last. Built to Last. And the emphasis of this sermon is on building something together that lasts on into the future. But it's also, I want to change your perspective a little bit on the way that you think about the work that you do every day. And recast it to think about the idea that the world will, yes, come to an end, but that God will take all the things that have been done and created in the world and transform them for eternal and everlasting good. My claim this morning is that the people of God can build something that lasts. The people of God can build something that lasts in a culture of celebrity mania, in the compromised culture of Chicago and Corinth, in the corruption of City Hall, that God's people can build something that will last. If it's framed with the architecture of longevity. So all I want to do is suggest to you four features of what I'm calling architectural longevity. Like, if you want to build something that lasts, what do you need to do in order to do that? We bow with me in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would give us a faith that lasts through the deconstruction of this era when North American spirituality seems to be deconstructing. We pray that you would give us work that lasts, Lord, for those who are professionals here, for those who wonder if the work they do matters at all. 
for the local church, we pray that you would give us work that lasts on to eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So just four observations on what I'm calling architectural longevity. If you want what you do to last, how do you build something that lasts? And the first little section, the first point I want to make is taken just from verses, the first couple of verses there in 10 and 11. And I'll, I'll state it this way, that if you want your work to last, then it needs to be your work and your life in this local church needs to be built on the rock of Christ. In some ways, that's pretty self-explanatory or from what we just sang, you know, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But think of it from this perspective. Uh, science does tell us there's a thing called entropy, that, that um, matter is all wearing down, energy is all wearing down. It's, it's obvious to scientists that our, hey, there goes the L by right now. I hope you're not distracted every time that happens because it happens like every two minutes, okay? Um, scientists tell us that the universe is not going to last forever. But there is something, or rather someone, who preceded all of creation and who died, died in the midst of creation who's going to outlast all of creation, and there's only one person, one thing that has defeated death, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega. Why? Because he is the first and the last, the one who spoke things into being, and the one who will endure beyond all things. So if everything is going to be consumed or reborn or burned up and then recreated, there's only one thing that will remain forever, and that is the person and the work of Jesus. In other words, this platform is going to be taken away, but there's a platform that will not be taken away, which is the person and work of Jesus. Now, to put this in the context of what's happening in the first uh, century and what's happening in Corinth, this is called an occasional letter. What that means is uh, it's a letter that's written to a specific occasion, right? And First and Second Corinthians are actually a series of four letters. This is letter number two. We call it First Corinthians because we don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote, but most likely they wrote a letter and said, hey, what about this and this and this and this and this? And Paul wrote back and said, let me tell you about this and this and this and this and this. That's why it's called occasional. And then 2 Corinthians is most likely the fourth letter from Paul. So one from them, one from Paul, then one, a second one from them, and a second one from Paul. First and 2 Corinthians, we call it, which is different, say, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's different, say, than pastoral epistles, which are written to Timothy and Titus. They're a different kind of letter, or what they call general epistles, like, like Hebrews or Ephesians or Colossians, which are a little more general. This is written to a very specific occasion, which is that the church was in trouble. <laughs> There's all kinds of fires in the church that are happening. There's boasting that's happening in the church. Uh, coming out of the Greek culture of philosophy, the Corinthian church had kind of fallen in love with this idea of wisdom, which is why, like in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul brings up this question of where are the wise? And what was happening is that as the People in Corinth were becoming sort of enamored with the teachers and the philosophers of the day, most likely called sophists. 
they were holding up people like Apollos, people like Paul, people like Cephas, and like, man, he's the best. He's just, you got to go and sit under his teaching and hear his teaching. So all of these sort of miniature foundations were being laid. The foundation of Paul, the foundation of, say, Plato or Socrates, Aristotle. And what Paul is saying is, look, there's only one foundation that's going to remain throughout history. And the wisdom of that foundation is the opposite of the wisdom of the world because it's a message of weakness. It's a message of powerlessness. So in a culture like Corinth or Chicago that is seeking power, the message seems very foolish. That's why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaim... Sorry, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Corinth was an amazing city. It was a Greek city-state that flourished before and after and during the um, golden years of Athens in 5th century BC. In 146, it was destroyed, lay dormant for about 100 years, and then was rebuilt in 44 BC by Julius Caesar, Think of Chicago sort of being rebuilt after the Chicago fire. It became a sort of very prosperous city center for a number of reasons. It was well known. Uh, had the Isthmian Olympics, much like the regular Olympic Games. It had adequate water supply, two harbors. But as it was repopulated primarily by freedom, freed, freed men, that is former slaves, it became a sexual center as well so that the word... Uh, to Corinthianize actually meant to commit sexual immorality. One historian named Strabo said that there were a thousand temple prostitutes um, at the temple of Aphrodite. A lot of scholars think that's an exaggeration. It is not true. But what happened is money and sex and celebrities, one, one, one author says that it basically was like the combination of New York, L.A., and Las Vegas kind of all put together. And all of that began to come into the church. And all Paul is saying is that when he founded the church, in verse 10 and 11, he says that he laid a foundation. That word there for skilled master builder actually is, could be wise. It picks up on the wisdom imagery, Sophos, Sophia. He was a wise master builder. He was like one of these masons who is responsible for the architectural foundation of the church, and he laid the architectural foundation on the person and work of Jesus, and he's saying that the teachers that are now coming in and the people are so enamored with the philosophy of the world, they'd be willing to change the foundation. And he makes this claim, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, which is to say, you want to build something that lasts, build it on the person and work of Christ because he is the only one who will outlast all things. That's the first architectural element of permanence is a solid foundation. Let me move to the second architectural element, which is not the foundation, but the construction itself. And I'll make this claim and then kind of unpack it. If the first point is that the work of the kingdom has to be built on the rock of Christ, the second one is that the work of the kingdom has to be built on the wisdom of Christ, as opposed to the wisdom of the world. 
In other words, it matters not only what you build your life on, the local church has to be built on the person and work of Christ. It seems very obvious to, to a, a group that is very committed to his teachings. But it also matters what you build with. And here's Paul's point, that a church that's built with what you might call flammable construction materials of the compromise of Corinth, of the celebrity culture of Corinth or the corruption of Chicago will be consumed by the judgment fires that come. So this is a little bit of uh, pyromania imagery here. <laughs> it's saying that there's a day coming when God will, so to speak, strike a match and he'll test everything that has been built in the world and some things will be consumed and other things will not. Some things will be consumed by the fire of judgment to come. And what he's saying is there are certain things like pride that's going to just be evaporated with the judgment of God. He's saying that there are certain things like sexual immorality that's going to just be burned up. But there are other things that have been done for Christ with the wisdom of Christ, with the hope of Christ that will last beyond you can see that in verses uh, 12 and following. It's a little bit strange imagery, and sometimes people have made this very allegorical, and we're not going to do that today. But verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So you picture this foundation, which is Christ. And he's arguing against these people who are building on it with all kinds of corrupt things. And he, he lists six elements kind of lists them actually from the most precious to the least precious. So gold and then silver and then precious stones. Three imperishable things. And then he lists three perishable things, wood, hay, and stubble or wood, hay, and straw. What he's doing is it's, it's not so much the point of what does the gold symbolize or what does the precious stone symbolize. He's creating these two categories of things and saying that some things will be consumed by the judgment fires of God when they come, and other things will last. And in the context of the book, the kinds of things he's talking about are pride is going to just get burned up. He's saying that sexual immorality in the church, which we find in chapter 5, verse 1, and then on into 6, is just going to get burned up. He even says, even if the person escapes judgment themselves and is still saved, some of their work is going to be burned up. You look at what it says in verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. And he's speaking in particular about these teachers that were linking themselves to kind of um, cultural wisdom and exchanging cultural wisdom for the wisdom of God. But he says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest... For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And what Paul is doing is preparing for the, what's to come in this letter, where he wants to clean house basically. And he's saying, clean it out now. Clean out the pride. Clean out the divisions. 
Clean out the sleeping around. Clean out the elbowing to get to the communion table because all of those things are flammable. The church has to be founded on the message of Christ, but it also has to be built on the work and lifestyle of Christ. And the way in which you conduct your work in the world is to be done for him, in emulation of him, because of him, with your hope in him. I haven't watched the new documentary on Hillsong. Maybe you have on exposing a megachurch. Um, I, did, I did happen to uh, watch the trailer last week because we were talking about celebrity culture. And it ends, this trailer about Hillsong and kind of some of the troubles they've gone through, it ends with a, a, a lyric by Johnny Cash, which says, sooner or later, God will cut you down. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting song. He says, well, my, I'm not going to sing it, okay. But he says, well, well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. Been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me in the voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of the angel's feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. And then he said, John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar and go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, and the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. Now, for modern people, that's very striking and a little bit of offensive to think of God standing like Father Time. But it's picturing a day of judgment coming when the work that we've invested will be tested. And he's basically saying, clean your heart now. And if you want to build something that will last, build it with the, the life and the character of Christ, emulating him. I personally think, yes, this means in every profession. If you're an actor, if you're a writer, to do your work towards the glory of God. And T. Wright is very clear on this concept that God doesn't merely just like start over with a brand new world. He takes the elements and the things that Christians have done in this world, the stands for justice, the, the feeding of the poor, the loving God with your heart, and he renews those in the same way the body of Jesus was renewed, the whole universe will be renewed one day. Our deeds of darkness will be consumed, but God will preserve our works into the next world. So three elements of architectural longevity. One is a foundation. Two is the construction itself. The third one I want to show you here is, that, uh, is what you might call the purpose of the local church. So it moves again to kind of very strong language. But you can think of it this way. If the works of the local church, if the work that you do is to outlast the Great Wall of China or to outlast the Fountain of Time created by Laredo Taft, or if it's going to outlive some of the great cathedrals like Beauvais or Bourges or Efro or Lien or Rouen, all of which took some 250 years to be created, then the work of the kingdom has to be built on the purpose of Christ. 
which is verses 16 and 17. And the purpose of the local church is very simple in this text, which is just to be a dwelling place of God himself. Like, one of, the, one of the reasons I'm most excited to be in this new space is actually just to be with all of you. <laughs> to be with the people that God, I was rewinding in my mind a year ago, like 53 weeks of virtual church, and then Easter was like supposed to be all great, and we did four services, but people are like sitting six feet apart from each other with a mask on. I don't think we could even sing, you know, it's like, this doesn't feel like church. But I felt like what God has been doing over the last 12 months is recreating us into a new community, timidly coming out of COVID, timidly trying to test and see if we can actually share our hearts with other people after we've been traumatized by the pains of COVID and people have been taken away. And what God is doing in every local church that's built on the foundation of Christ is building a place for himself to dwell. Look at what it says in verse 16. Do you not know? This is the purpose of the church, to be the dwelling place of God in the world. Do you not know that you, that's y'all, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? And now I think he's speaking of the pride that's destroying the church in Corinth and the sexual immorality that's destroying the church in Corinth, and he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I was talking to a younger man this week, and he shared about how many times he had seen some of his mentors who had been in places of leadership use their leadership for sexual exploitation and for abuse, and then become atheists, or spiritual, but not really believing. When a pastor uses his position for sexual exploitation, it destroys lives. And God's saying, I'm going to destroy the one who does that. Why? Because the people of God are to be a place of holiness. God has always wanted to dwell with his people. If you think back to the garden, Adam and Eve are walking with God in the garden. Or if you think back to the tabernacle, when Moses goes into the presence of God, he has to wear a face covering because his face was so bright. In the temple under Solomon, the, the great Shekinah glory came down. In Isaiah chapter 8, here's what it says. In that year, King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. That is, the hem of his garment filled the whole temple. That's the, the majesty and the size of God. And above him stood some seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. This place needs to be a holy place. Famous pastor in Chicago, James Meeks, who's been a pastor for about 40 years, and somebody was complimenting him on the church building that he had built and said, you know, when I came into that place, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, yeah, he lives there. 
which is the point of what Paul is saying. Corporately, together, God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle or in the woods. He doesn't dwell in a temple. You all have become the temple of the living God, is what it is saying. So come to church ready to hear from him. Come to church ready to praise him. God's, God's church can stand secure. The work of the local church and your works can endure in a world of compromise. In an era of celebrity culture gone mad, in an age of deconstruction, if it's built to last, built on the foundation, built with the wisdom of Christ, built for the presence of Christ or the purpose of Christ. And then the last thing here is Paul kind of leaves his building imagery and he basically says that the people of God will inherit all of Christ and all Christ has. And he kind of takes these first century wisdom people and says, okay, let me compare what the first century Wise people, Plato, Aristotle, others, what they hold up and then compare it with what Christ offers you. Verse 18, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise, which is very Greek, actually. You know, if you want to become wise, you have to realize how foolish you are. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Here's a scary idea. God knows what you're thinking right now. He knows that you're thinking, when is this sermon going to end? You know? Or where are we going? For Is there a restaurant right around here? Yes, there's a lot of restaurants around here. He knows what you're thinking and he knows what we boast. And verse 21 says, so let no one boast in men. The church isn't about the greatest theologians or the greatest leaders or the greatest artists. It's about the greatest son of God. Don't boast in men. Yes, Loretta Taft is a sculptor, but God outlasts time. And here's one of the most radical statements in all the scripture. He says, for all things are yours. What? That has to be an error in the text. Listen to the logic. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you're Christ and Christ is God. In other words, if you belong to Christ and everything belongs to Christ and you're in Christ, then you share in all of his inheritance. Everything is yours. Like what? Like the whole world. The meek shall inherit the earth. It's actually amazing in Romans when Paul reinterprets what God says to, to uh, Abraham in, in Genesis 12, he, he, he says that God is promising him the whole earth. Everything is yours, he says. What else is yours besides the earth? Life. You're going to rise again. Be with Christ if you're in Christ. Death, you'll conquer it. The present, it's yours. The future is yours. To God be the glory. So build something to last by putting your hope in the promises of God and trusting in him. So easy for us to get beguiled by the teaching of the world. 
to get confused by the way our culture seems to be turning things upside down. And Paul's saying, look at, let's keep it really simple. Build a strong foundation on Christ. Build with the lifestyle and the message of Christ with his wisdom. And make your, the place of your gathering to be a place of holiness and let God call you into this life of holiness. And then set your heart on the future that is to come where incredibly, he says, all things are yours. That uh, one of those great theologians in the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe, uh, is riding his horse towards his men before they're about to go into battle, and it's like in the woods, and he's giving them a little speech, and he's saying to them, you know, um, saying, you know, just basically fight hard. If you find yourself in the green field all of a sudden, guess what? You may have died and you might be in Elysium. But then he has this famous word, these famous words that he says, brothers and sisters, what we do in life echoes into eternity. That's basically what Paul is saying. That everything is not merely swept away by a fire. Some of what you do, some of what the church does. So you've done things in life where it's like, that was total failure and total loss. But it's very possible that God's going to kick through the dirt and kick through the dust of what you thought was a failure and pull out a couple of things and say, I found a little bit of gold. I found a little bit of silver. I found a little bit of precious jewel. And this one is my own. It was called by my name, that poet I mentioned at the beginning, said, time goes, you say? Ah, no, alas, time stays, we go. But in the resurrection, it's the opposite. Time goes, and we stay because of Christ. So live your life with purpose. Live it for eternity. Make your choices today and this week based on the holiness of God, who's called you to be his temple. View your deeds as lasting beyond. And let's live our lives in this city for Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrected Jesus Christ, what we do in life echoes on in eternity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you for all the creative people in this room, some of whom are tired, some of whom want to give up, some of whom feel like it doesn't matter anymore. Did you really rise from the dead? Did that happen? Did people really see the resurrected Son of God? If so, then God, help us to follow you towards our own death, trusting that the work we do, some of it, will survive the fire and bring you glory. Pray for this church that you'd position us, Lord, for 50 years, 100 years, to influence this city for Christ, to make disciples who make disciples, practicing disciples. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.